Hey, we are this morning looking at Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. We've been in this passage for the last few weeks, kind of, kind of digging in on who is this Jesus? Who is this one that has a powerful name? And what does this mean for us to worship the Messiah, the anointed one? And it's interesting for us because we as a culture now, we anticipate Christmas coming once every 12 months. And so it's, you know, as you, you get excited about it, you think about it right as you get your credit cards paid off, here comes Christmas again, some of you, right? And so there's freedom and then there's debt. So here we are, and so it's this kind of a cycle. But for people at this time of Jesus's day, they had been waiting for at least 700 years plus for the Messiah to come. And as a matter of fact, before Jesus came, there was about 400 years of silence where there wasn't anyone, there wasn't any prophecy, there wasn't anything happening spiritually that where people were awakened. And so whenever the Messiah came, there was this rejoicing. And so imagine if you had to wait 25, 30, 40 years before you received a gift. You knew that a gift was coming and you were waiting. And the expectancy, the heart of what it would mean to wait, the hope that you would have to have for that gift that would be there. And so this is the idea. Here Isaiah is putting forth that there is a gift coming. A son, a child will be born. A son will be given unto us. And that child and that son that we born will give it to us. And he lists off the names and characteristics of the Messiah, the anointed one. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. And then also, um, it, it, is it going to show up on the screen, I think? Yeah. And then also a little bit later on, we'll be looking at Ephesians. So if you, some of you like to flip around, so go ahead and grab that spot in Ephesians as well. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 says it this way. For a child will be born for us. The Messiah. A son will be given to us. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be named. Now, you know, we just talked about there's power in the name. And so the name, there's something that comes with that. So when you hear the name Chris, there's thoughts of who Chris is. And so the characteristics, good and bad, right? Hey, there's this really good looking guy that needs a haircut. You know, whatever that is. So there's a name that comes with that. And so there's character with the name. And so here Isaiah is listing off the Messiah. These are the characteristics that we will think about the Messiah. His name will be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, and Prince of Peace. So this morning we're going to think about this name and characteristic Eternal Father. Now, again, throughout Scripture, God has progressively revealed himself to the point of the Messiah being born. And so whenever Abraham began this faith journey, we kind of see the story in Genesis. God progressively revealed himself to the nations and to the peoples so that at the exact perfect time in history, the Messiah would be born. So if you study some history and you get into you realize that the Roman Empire controlled basically the entire known world at the time of Jesus' birth. And so never before in history had there been a better time or better place, better communication, anything for then for the Messiah to be born. And so we see in Genesis all the way through God progressively revealing a little bit more of himself and a little bit more of what the Redeemer is going to look like so that there's creating this expectancy, there's creating this hope, there's creating this, what we call in movies, this, this tension, right? There's this dramatic tension that you're waiting for the crescendo to happen in music. And so here, the perfect moment, 700 years after Isaiah had prophesied that a son, a child would be given to us, a, a son would be born, and 
He would be a wonderful counselor, a mighty God, an eternal father. The Messiah is born in this place called Bethlehem, and he grows up in this place called Nazareth. The perfect moment. So what does it look like for the Messiah to be eternal? Now, we kind of grasp that we're not eternal. We're going to have a a birth, and we're going to have a death, and there's that dash in between, and so our time is limited. And so we kind of grasp that we have a limited amount of time, but for God to be eternal means that he is outside of time. So that whenever God was, there was never a beginning, there's never an end. Not about you, but that's hard to grasp, that there's not a beginning, that there's not an end. And so, but God doesn't have a beginning, God doesn't have an end, he is was and will forever be. But for a time, he has limited himself to our finite knowledge and has placed himself in a world that defines time by 60 seconds, by an hour, by minutes, and all this, so that for a while that we are in an opportunity, the Eternal One has stepped down into time so that we can enter into relationship with him so that we can experience outside of this short time that we have on earth an eternity of life with him and that an abundant life, not only here, but also for an eternity. So this eternal idea of God being with us and he's stepped out of that eternity for a little bit, the incarnation, and has experienced time with us. It's an interesting idea. As a matter of fact, the songwriter's of old said it this way in Psalm 102, Long ago you established the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will endure. Now, so here we have this eternal father thing, and so a father, whenever they have children, they are passing along their lineage. That's a desire. Whenever a father has a child, they pass them along. And in the old days, that happened through your son. So, Whenever a father had a son, his son would take on his last name and would bear his last name. But also the father, if the father was a carpenter, guess what you got to do as the son? You got to be a carpenter. All right? It was, it was pretty much that's what you did. And so not only did you get to do it, but guess what your son got to do? Got to be a carpenter. Guess what your great-grandson got to do? Be a carpenter. You know, you probably got to be pretty good carpenters, but you most likely, if you're a carpenter, you're not going to become a banker. That's outside of the realm of your father's legacy. That's outside of the the realm of what your father knew and how he could even teach you. So he would actually, to give you that other thing, if you wanted to move from being a carpenter to a banker, he would actually have to adopt you out and to give you to another father so that you could then become a part of that family and that lineage so then you could take on his last name so you could become a banker. That sounds unique for us, but that's exactly what happened? And in Second Samuel, the prophet Samuel came to David and he said, Hey, David, you are currently the king of all kings. There's never been a king as strong and as mighty and as wealthy as you. You are the greatest warrior that has ever existed. And so you are the king of kings. And so every king desires as a father for his throne to carry on, for his name to carry on for all eternity, because that would make you the king of kings. If you're the first king of your lineage and all the other kings and princes that come about are from your lineage, then you are the king of kings. All right? Okay, we need more coffee. All right, here we go. 
And so there's this lineage. And so David, I'm sure, is just being human, dreamed of that he could see for a long time that his great, 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 great grandson is going to be the king and how massive his realm would be. So Samuel, the prophet, received a word from God and went to David and said, Hey, David, God has told me that for all time being, your lineage will carry on, that you will have a son. There will be someone in your lineage. There will be a son born down the line that will carry on your throne. Now, here's the little kink. He's actually my son. This is God talking. But he will carry on the throne of David. Now, that would have been an interesting conversation. And so in 2 Samuel, we see that. And again, he's thinking, hey, that's, that's awesome because a father's son carries on his lineage. And so in 2 Samuel, we see that David then grasped that his throne, I think in that moment, is it not just going to be temporal, but it will have an eternal factor. And I imagine that he's processing what does that mean? What does it look like? How does that possibly happen? So here he is, eternal, and he's father, and he's passing it on. So we see the name eternal father. Now, some of us, we've had good father experiences. Some of us haven't. So I want you to, if you haven't had a positive father experience, just kind of set that aside for a moment. Imagine that there's a perfect father. And so we're going to talk a little bit about him this morning. So this idea of father. So to be a father, as we've talked about, you're, you're going to be a carpenter time after time after time. So to become now a banker, because all of you want to be bankers, right? I know that because you all, all want to be Wealthy and generous. I see it. I can see it in your eyes. And you're thinking, man, I wish my last name was MasterCard or Discover, okay? And you have all that money. And so you're going to become a banker. And so to become a banker, then you are adopted into the banker's family so that you can have MasterCard as your last name, all right? And so now you come in and you become adopted. And so now you begin to learn the characteristics of what it means to be a banker. And so to become a banker, you have to learn one plus one equals Okay, let's, let's practice. All right. I know school's out and all that stuff. One plus one equals? All right. Five plus five equals? You should pay Chris lots. Yeah, there you know. And so there's this whole thing. And so everything changes. So your perspective changes. Okay? And so you now have a different father and has a different purpose. He talks a different language. He does things differently. As a matter of fact, does a carpenter dress the same way as a banker? No, right? Or they probably shouldn't, or they're not going to be a banker, or a carpenter is going to cut off his coat and go sleeveless. So, I mean, you're just going to, it's going to look ridiculous. And so the same thing is true for us, is that this Messiah was born, and we were once in a family that was different, that was distorted, that our purposes for the family was all about me and getting what I wanted. But along came an opportunity for me to be adopted into God's family and to, ex- to experience the riches of what it meant to be in God's family and the responsibilities that come with being in God's family. And we said yes to the Messiah. We said yes to Jesus. And we're now adopted into God the Father's family. And so what once was my purpose over here and my meaning and my job over here as a carpenter, now I have a different job, a different mindset, a different idea of how to do life now as a child of a banker, and that one day my father hopes to pass on his riches and responsibility and the blessings to me now as his child, but I also have a new name. So I'm not now just Mr. 
John Carpenter, but now I'm John Mastercard. And so that everyone's, whenever they say my name now, they think of I have a different father. And so you have a new purpose. And so this idea of adoption is an interesting idea. So now we have been adopted into the family of God by us saying yes to Jesus. And so now we have a new purpose. Now we have a new name. We are heirs with Christ. As a matter of fact, look in Hebrews chapter 2. It says this, those who are sanctified, those who have entered into relationship with God the Father through Jesus, all have one Father. That is why Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. Now that's interesting, isn't it? Is that Jesus, we worship Jesus, and he's this, we worship him because he's God, but also he is our brother because he's the firstborn of our Father. So we should act and play a little bit differently because we have a pretty cool brother. Right. And so now we're adopted and we're into this new family and and we have a brother. If you thought you had a brother or sister that was goody two shoes, listen, Jesus is pretty good. And he hadn't even made a mistake. So you're never going to measure up to the father's expectations. You're always going to fail in some way. So just quit trying to play that game. Some of you, you live the game of Chuck E. Cheese. You know what I'm talking about? You think that God is waiting on you to pop your little head up like the sharks at Chuck E. Cheese so he can bop you on the head because he's just waiting to find his children doing something wrong. When a reality is completely opposite, he is not trying to find us. He is trying to spur us on and encourage us to find life-giving stuff because he wants us to live life to the fullest and to not experience pain, shame, regret, all those things. He wants us to experience what it means to live life to the fullest and to experience all of that. It isn't a God who's up there waiting to bop us on the head, but a God who is applauding and saying, I love you, my child. Listen, I know that you didn't make every shot at the game, but you gave it everything you got. But that is our Father. We've been sanctified. We've hopped into the family and joined, and that, that through that family that we can now call him Abba Father. And I think about this, this idea of calling him Abba Father. This is a term of endearment that literally as your children are younger, that they crawl up into your lap. You remember some of those days, maybe it's moms and dads and grandparents, it's when your kids... They get to a certain age where they can't crawl up in your lap, right? Because the chair dumps over or whatever. But there's that point where it's, they're there and they're cozy and they just like, you're just kind of in that moment of intimacy. And so that's what I imagine in this passage here in, in Romans chapter 8, verse 12 and following. It says, you have received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, one of the things we talk about here a lot is you know that you know that you know that you know Jesus because your knower knows. Right? And that's, it's one of those things of whenever you have said yes to Jesus and you have a relationship with him, that there's some things that you can't explain to someone that doesn't know Jesus, you can just say, I know that I know because my knower knows. And we know that that's our soul and our soul understands that we know Jesus. And so this is kind of what Paul is, is saying, and that is that, that we understand that there's something inside of us in our soul that testifies that we are a child of him because we've experienced God the Father's love lavished on us. 
So that the Spirit testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. And if children, also heirs and heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Now, some of you, how many of you have done the new DNA testing? Y'all got that? Some of y'all have done it, 23andMe, and you found out what? That you're not pure, but you're a mutt. Right? You're from Europe. You're from Africa. You're from wherever. you got all these different things. Here's the deal. Is that if you are a child of God, you are a unique mutt. Because you have the Spirit, the Holy Spirit has been imputed into you at that moment that you said yes to Him. You are in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. It says that you are now a new creation. And so that idea of a new creation is literally that you, when you said yes, you were melted down and that you were brought back and that the Holy Spirit was now in you, and so you have a different substance, and so again, you are the same, you may look the same on the outside, but on the inside that you are different. In other words, your DNA has changed, and your DNA has changed because the Holy Spirit is now a part of you, that your knower, that your knower, that your knower knows that you are an heir with Christ, and so that you are now a part of the family of God, and you know that. Now, at our house, one of the ways that our children know that they're a part of the family at our house is they not only do they get to eat, which is kind of cool, but to eat, they have to participate. And so sometimes it's they're happy to participate. Sometimes they're not so happy. Right. And so whenever we eat at our house, that means somebody's got to cook. OK, well, sometimes uh, it may not be a cooking at our house. Somebody else may cook it for us, but somebody's cooked it. And so then someone has to get silverware. You know what I'm talking about? You all heard of those things? Forks and knives and spoons, okay? That makes life a little easier sometimes, unless you're eating fried chicken, I hear. Unless you're in the proper spot, then you have to eat it with a knife and fork. Anyway, that's a whole other deal. And so you've got silverware, and then someone else then cleans up the dishes and puts them in the dishwasher and all that. Why? Because a healthy family, everyone contributes. In a healthy family, everyone contributes at the weight and the respect age responsibility of which they can contribute. So some of you, you've got two- and three-year-olds and four-year-olds, and you're thinking, hey, they can't contribute. Guess what they can do? They can put napkins and silverware on the table. May you now have to get them out of the drawer and hand them to them, but they can do them. It may not be straight, but they can still put them on the table. Because why? Because we all need a sense of the fact that we can contribute to something bigger than ourselves. We need the sense to understand that we can contribute to a family because we all need to have a sense that we belong to something bigger than ourselves. And so that as children and heirs of Christ, one of the things about the blessings is, is that we actually have responsibility. I know sometimes as kids we're like, I don't want responsibility. But that's also a part of that is a blessing is that we actually have a family to be a part of. We have an opportunity to be a part of something bigger than ourselves and that we're heirs with him. In First Ephesians chapter 1 Verse 3 and following, if you have your Bible, turn with me. I'm going to read a passage that's pretty long. And as I read it, I want you to follow along on the screen, I think, and, um, and following. And I want you, every time that you hear in Christ or in him, you have my permission, just underline it in your Bibles. I want you to see, because here Paul is talking to the church at Ephesus. And he's saying to the church at Ephesus, you are the children of God. You are part of the family of God, and that is through Christ and in him or in Christ. Literally, our location is that our house is located in Christ. And so he'll talk about in Christ, in him. And then here are your blessings. Here are the responsibilities that come from being in the family of God. Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 3. 
Praise the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavens. Not some, not part of, but with every. In other words, our Father lavishes us beyond what we can even fathom. Okay, So every spiritual blessing in the heavens. For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Now this is cool because before he even entered into time, he thought of you and loved you and was concerned enough about you that he made preparations for you. That the hope of the Messiah, the one born, was even before time. For he chose us in him before the foundations of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us he pre, he, he, to be adopted through Jesus Christ for himself. In other words, he was prepared for us to be adopted and to come in in the sonship. In other words, his bank account was ready. He has enough for us. His retirement plan, his 401k, his whatever all those things are, those of you that know about money, he, he's prepared. Okay, He's had all of eternity to prepare for us. He's not going to run out. They're Jesus Christ himself. According to his favor and will, to, the, to his praise, his glorious grace, that he favored us with one in the beloved. We have redemption in him through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses, according to his riches of his grace, that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, that he planned in him for the administration of the days of fulfillment, to bring everything together in the Messiah. In other words, everything happened in that moment that he planned with the birth of the Messiah, both things in heaven and the things on earth in him. We've also received an inheritance in him, predestined according to the purpose of the one who works out everything in agreement with the decision of his will. In other words, it is perfectly planned out. There will be no chaos. There will be no division. So that he who had already put out our hope, put our hope in the Messiah, might bring praise to his glory. When you heard the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed in him, you were also sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. He is the down payment of our inheritance for the redemption of the possession to the praise of his glory. That all of the blessings of heaven are ours as his children. That our everlasting eternal father isn't surprised by us. He isn't surprised by who we are. He isn't surprised by our gifts. He isn't surprised by the fact that we're in the family. He has prepared for you for all of eternity. And in that moment that you said yes, he began to be a cheerleader for you. Not to catch you, not to hurt you, not to just, he's not up there as a cosmic, just want to whoop you. He is there to provide for you. He is a good, good father. We sing that song all the time. What does it mean for him? to be a good, good father. Number one, I'll ask you this. Have you been adopted into the family? Have you said yes to him? Have you gone from being one of this into the family of God and experienced what that means? If not, then maybe today's that day. As a child of God, as one who's been adopted in, are you living in such a way that you still see God as someone who's wanting to catch you and wanting to to discipline and, and all this different stuff that God is not for you, but he's against you? And I pray that today that you would begin to see that God loves you and he cares for you and he's about you. He has 
blessings for you. He has an inheritance for you. He has so much for us to experience as his children. A good, good father provides for his children. A good, good father also disciplines his children in the right way at the right time with the right words. A good, good father encourages at the right time and in the right way. A good, good father provides a home of freedom and security. And a good, good father provides a home of hope. We have a good, good father. A father who stepped out of eternity so that we could experience him in this time. So that we could, for all of eternity, have life to the full with him. Through the person, through the child born 2,000 years ago. It was wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid in a manger so that we can experience the fullness of what it means to be a child of God. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. Thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you that he's the Messiah, the anointed one. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. He's a mighty God. A wonderful counselor. Prince of peace. And an everlasting father. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.